We want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra this evening as we continue a new study in another book of the Old Testament. Tonight we pick up here in a new book of the Bible. We come to the book of Ezra, which is really what we often refer to as a post-exile, a historical book in the Bible. And when we say post-exile, what we mean by that is basically a book that records to us history of the nation of Israel that is on the other side of the time of the exile or the time of what we often call the captivity. Again, remember as we went through our study in Second Chronicles together, that ended uh, with a very important explanation of where the nation was at that time. In fact, if I can, for sake of just reference to kind of set the context as we begin a new book study together, it's always helpful to have a little bit of introduction as a backdrop to better understand the context. If I can draw your attention back, actually, perhaps a, just a page to the left to Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 14 down through verse 21. Let me just read that to you just to refresh our memories uh, to what really is sort of the backdrop of where we'll be going into in our study. It tells us in verse 14 of Second Chronicles chapter 36, Moreover, all the leaders and the priests of the people transgressed more and more according to the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But verse 16, they mocked his messengers, the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Again, a time when the people of God had gone so far in their immorality, in their idolatry, in their neglect of the word of God, the nation had fallen so far into its depravity that nothing else was left as a remedy to resolve the situation, and the judgment of God was now inevitable. God had to bring judgment at this point in time, and of course, we're going to see that that then caused them to go into exile, or what we call captivity, where they will for 70 years basically live in slavery and servitude to the Babylonian kingdom. God raised up the Babylonian nation to come in and to capture Judah and to deport them. Remember, we saw in Second Chronicles three separate deportations. It was a gradual, progressive fall of Jerusalem and Judah. And here we're reading now of this sort of final fall of the nation of Judah because there was no longer any remedy. God had patiently endured, did everything he could through prophets and messengers trying to warn them to turn them away, but they continued to progress in their evil and rebellion till there was no remedy. Verse 17 says, therefore, he, that's God, brought against them the Chaldeans who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, had no compassion on young man or virgin or the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. In other words, God just in a sense took away his hedge of protection and he allowed them as a form of judgment to be conquered by a foreign nation. That's how God's judgment was brought against his people. He let them be conquered by another nation. And all the articles from the house of God, that is the temple, great and small, verse 18 says, the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took 
to Babylon. Verse 19, and they burned the house of God. So the temple is now burnt and, and destroyed, broke down the wall around Jerusalem. We'll see in Nehemiah that wall rebuilt in these books ahead of us. Burned all its places with fire, destroyed all its precious possessions. So in 586 BC here, we see now the destruction of the temple. The temple is burned. All the articles and the furnishings, these things are stolen or destroyed in the fire. And it says, verse 20, those who escaped from the sword, he then carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. This will bring us into the book of Ezra to fulfill verse 21. Notice to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So again, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, the prophet who had been warning the people, Jeremiah was the one prophet, remember, who was not deported and taken away into Babylon. Daniel was brought into Babylon, Ezekiel, but Jeremiah was left back in Jerusalem and continued to beckon the people and caution them and tell them, look, the judgment of God is inevitable at this point. You can't resist it. It wouldn't make sense to fight against what God is doing. The best thing to do is just yield and submit yourself we are now going to be captives for 70 years in a land of idolatry. So in a sense, God could get idolatry out of their system. That was part of the problem. They loved idols so much and would not be done with, you know, continuing to uh, indulge in their idols. So you know, God has a, a wonderful way sometimes of remedying problems. In a sense, God says, you like idolatry, I will take you to the land of idolatry until you are sick and tired of pursuing what is destructive in your life. In a sense, God gives them over, lets them go to the land that had more progressive idolatry than anywhere else. And the interesting thing is when they come back, Israel has other struggles throughout history, but they don't struggle with idolatry much anymore. God had a good way of getting it out of their system. You know, sometimes God has to let people go to the end of their pursuit, even of evil and filth and idolatry to get them so sick and tired of being sick and tired of something to where it kind of gets it out of their system. And so God let them go into the land of idolatry. But verse 21 is important here because it tells us this was also to fulfill the word of the Lord to let the land also enjoy her Sabbath. And as long as she lay desolate, the land, it says, kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Again, another one of their uh, disregards was the command of God in his word. They were disregarding many commands. But the command of God in his word that every seven years the land was to lay fallow. They were not to plant or to sow or to reap or to do anything, but they were let the land have a Sabbath every seven years so that it could replenish itself, so that the soil could be rejuvenated and it could continue to be prosperous. And it also was a way for them to indicate their dependence upon God. That for six years, they would work the fields. And then in that seventh year, they were to trust that the same God that provided for them in the prior six years could sustain them through the seventh year and into the eighth. And it was a way for them, rather than being greedy for gain or overindulging and getting more consumed with work than they really should, as we all can do from time to time, to recognize God's their provider. The land belongs to God. He gave them the land. He gave them the opportunity to work. And they were to honor God by taking a break and letting the land rest and ceasing from work at times and just trusting God to provide without greedily, selfishly, always trying to acquire more. Well, they disregarded that for 490 years. 
For 490 years, they, for whatever reason, disregarded God's word, kept working the land, abusing the land, which belonged to God, not to Israel. And that's something always important to remember as well. That land belongs to God first. It belongs to Israel second. They're God's tenants. Now, that's all the more reason why Israel belongs in the land, because it's God's land, not Israel's land. God gave the land to whom he wanted to be in the land. That's why it is important that Israel be given the land. But they had abused that privilege, and so God says, okay, 490 years, you rejected the seventh year rest, so you owe me 70 years. And you can't rob God. You and I can do the same. You can try and rob God of what rightly belongs to him in your life, whether it's your time, whether it's your money, whatever. It's never going to work. You try and rob God, God will just take it back, and you won't get to use it anyway. He'll find other ways. You know, oh, I'm, I can't trust the Lord and give my money to the Lord. Okay, God will just let your car break down incessantly. <laughs> you, you, I mean, I just, and I, I say that, you know, facetiously, but you understand what I'm saying. So we think, well, I got to keep my money. I, gotta, I can't trust the Lord. Well, well, God will find other ways to basically, well, if, if you're not going to manage it properly, well, then I'll find other ways to make sure that you don't get to greedily expend it upon yourself all the time. You can't rob the Lord. It's better to just honor God with your resources properly in the way that he directs you to. And, and here, they, they neglected this. So now they're going to be captives for 70 years in the land. Well, at the end of those 70 years, God wouldn't perpetually let them suffer. He's now going to bring them back to the land. That's what the book of Ezra is about. The book of Ezra now is post-exile. We, we move 70 years ahead at the end of this period of captivity being there in Babylon for 70 years, bearing the consequences of their sin. Ezra is a record of the return of the Jews back to Jerusalem. It's the restoration of God's people after failure and consequences have served their purpose in their lives. And the first return, there'll be two returns of God's people that happen in the book of Ezra. The first return will be led by a man named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, which had been destroyed and burnt down, and to restore the worship life of God's people. That will be a process that lasts about 22, 23 years. That first process of the first group going back. Then there's a 60-year gap historically, which the book of Esther actually fits into, if you're looking to kind of put those pieces together. There's a 60-year gap after the first group returns. Then there's a second return that go back to Jerusalem after a 60-year gap, and that group is led back by Ezra, the priest and the scribe whose name, actually, this book is given to us after. And Ezra will lead back a smaller group, and he will go back as a priest and a scribe to basically try and strengthen the spiritual lives of the people, to teach them the word of God and to help them get really anchored spiritually back in the land. So the book kind of breaks almost into two sections very nicely. Chapters 1 through 6 is a reference to the temple restoration which is that first group going back under Zerubbabel. Then there's a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then chapter 7 through 10 is a record of the renewing and rebuilding of the spiritual lives when Ezra goes back with a second group of people. Now, only a very small percentage will actually return back from Babylon, which is kind of a unique thing. No doubt hundreds of thousands, if we're just using you know, relative estimates, hundreds of thousands are brought to Babylon, living there for 70 years in a foreign land, you know, having children, next generations going on, settling in, establishing their businesses, building homes. They're there for 70 years. So there's a few hundred thousand in Babylon, but only a very small remnant answer the call 
when the opportunity is to go back to the place of Jerusalem. And in some ways that isn't real shocking because there wasn't much to go back to in Jerusalem. It wasn't an easy call. Uh, It wasn't something that was an easy ministry to go embrace. It was a place that was burnt down and was a mess. And so many opted to stay in Babylon and just to be comfortable with their lives and not let go of those things. The first return that goes back with Zerubbabel is only a little under 50,000 people. That's a very small percentage of how large the group actually was there in Babylon. And then when uh, Ezra goes back with the second group, it's under 2,000 people. So it's a very small percentage that actually do return. Uh, The book certainly has some wonderful themes in it. One of them certainly is it's a great reminder that God desires restoration after failure. This is a book that shows to us that after failure has happened and consequences have served their proper purpose to discipline people in their lives, God desires restoration that it's the heart of God to stir people in a way where they are restored and and experience once again God's best for their lives. It also teaches us that God orchestrates what's needed to fulfill his purposes and his plans. We'll see that God stirs the hearts of people for things to happen. There's not manipulation. There's not people trying to motivate one another. There's not, you know, multimedia efforts to do this and that. There's not, you know, good advertising. There's, There's none of that. God just stirs the hearts of people spiritually and the works of God come to pass. There's no need to use these extra. It's just God stirs the hearts of people and that's how God's work comes to pass. It's a sovereign move of God on the hearts of people to bring about his plans and purposes. And we'll also see finally that God works through small remnants. Again, God didn't need the majority. God used a very small remnant and through a very small remnant, God actually brought about the things that he wanted to. So let's jump in. In verse 1, it tells us, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled, it says, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, and this is what the proclamation or decree stated, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the inhabitants of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver, with gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So uh, quite a bit there in those first four verses, but it gives us sort of the historical setting of what's taking place. And then it describes for us how God began to bring his process to pass by, again, stirring the heart, interestingly enough, of a king, a ruler who does not even seem to be someone who has a genuine relationship with God, just a man who has a sense of recognition of God's existence and is willing to acknowledge God's existence, but not necessarily someone who, again, is a Daniel or an Abraham or a David who loves the Lord 
just a man who's in a place of power. Again, the Bible tells us that God sets up kings and God brings down kings. It tells us in Romans 13, there's no authority that exists unless God allows for that authority to end up being in existence. And, and it's important for us to recognize that. So again, sometimes we think, well, you know, why do we have this rule? Or maybe because God wanted to be gracious, so God let that ruler be in power. Other times you go, why do we have this ruler? Well, sometimes because God goes, because of the way you're living and that's apparently what you want in your nation, that's the ruler I'm going to give you. That's what you want. There you go. See how you like that ruler. At the end of the day, God's sovereign over these things. And now we see this man Cyrus, again, not necessarily someone who it seems has a relationship with God, but yet the sovereign hand of God is upon him and God uses him as an instrument to still bring about what he wants for his purposes on the earth, and even to do what's in the best interest of the people of God. Very beautiful to realize that God can do that, that God can use a ruler, a king, someone in authority politically to work on behalf of what is best for his people, to do that which is in their best interest. And that's what Cyrus becomes. You know, Cyrus is an interesting figure. It tells us in verse one that this was the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now you already can see there's been a time gap from second chronicles because the children of israel remember were conquered by the babylonian empire nebuchadnezzar because babylon was the world empire at that time well the next world empire that conquered babylon was what was called the medo-persian empire the medo-persian empire predominantly it was the power of persia they mingled together the medes with them and cyrus is now the the king, the first king of this next world empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And very interesting, Cyrus was both half Persian and also was half Mede by his parents. And he had this amazing ability to unify or weld these two people groups, the Medes and the Persians, to bring them together and then ultimately to conquer Babylon in 539 BC. Well, when he conquered Babylon, he absorbed everything that was under Babylon's empire including all the people of God, the Jews that were there in captivity for 70 years, he inherited them as he absorbed the Babylonian empire when he took over control after conquering Babylon. So he establishes his new empire. And one of his first things that he does, it says it was in his first year, he issues this decree. Now this decree he issues in 538 BC. And it happens, it says in verse one there, because it was a fulfillment of the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, it says. So the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation, it says, throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. This decree that the Jewish people had freedom to return back to Jerusalem. They were set free to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. And not only were they permitted to go back and rebuild the temple, he actually gave them financial incentive if they went back. He said, not only are you permitted to go back, there's even going to be financial incentive if you go about this process to go back. And he refers to that here. And what was taking place, the Bible tells us here, is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, a fulfillment by the word of the Lord that came through the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet. Now, let me just read to you what's probably being referenced to, if you're a note taker, two passages from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 
Verse 10 and 11, the Lord said this through Jeremiah. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And this whole land, the Lord said, shall be a desolation and astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah predicted that. But then Jeremiah in chapter 29 says this. Jeremiah 29, this is 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So God speaks of a returning after the 70-year period. It's after that statement. God then says this very famous statement. Most of us know this, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. That was God saying, though I'm going to leave you there for 70 years, I'm not angry with you. I'm already, as soon as you're starting your 70-year consequence period, I'm already thinking about restoring you. I'm already committed to the process of your restoration. I already see your future. And I'm hoping all these wonderful things for what's ahead. I'm going to bring you back to the land of Jerusalem. God gave them a promise. Even as they were heading into captivity, he says, then you will call upon me and pray to me and I'll listen to you. And you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you and bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and from the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. So when we read here, this was a fulfillment of the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What it's reminding us here is that this was a fulfillment of prophecy that God predicted and God always brings to pass whatever he promises. And so God is bringing it to pass. But how does God bring it to pass? By stirring the heart of a pagan king who just came into power and God says, now I'm going to use him as my tool and my instrument to bring about my word for my people to bring about what's in their best interest. What an amazing thing here. It's the Lord who stirs, it says, stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he'd make this proclamation with his power giving them the freedom and the provision and all they need to go back and to be restored to their land as God promised and to rebuild their temple. Now, here's what's interesting. Again, we can only speculate. Again, how did God stir the spirit of Cyrus? You know, again, the, the indication there is the Lord stirred up something in his inward man, in his thoughts, in his heart. The Lord stirred something within him that made him say, I should do this. I should command that these people should go back and rebuild their temple, and I should encourage them to do such and support them. Again, how does the Lord do that? Well, a couple things to take into consideration. It's very likely it was through at least two things, that being one, through prayer and through the word of God. And let me explain what I mean by that. First of all, we know that around this same time period, Daniel chapter 9 records for us that Daniel himself who, remember, was in a political position under the Babylonian Empire originally, and then he was already still there as a high-ranking cabinet member when the Medo-Persians took over. He's now an old man, but this old, wise sage, this counselor, who, in a sense, passes from one empire to the next, and it tells us in Daniel chapter 9 
that Daniel was familiar with the prophecies of Jeremiah, the ones that I just read to you a minute ago, that God said, after 70 years, I will restore my people back to the land. And he's reading the word of God. He's familiar with Jeremiah's prophecies, the scripture. And at the same time, he's looking at the calendar and going, hey, it's been almost 70 years. And it says Daniel begins to pray. And what's he doing? He's taking the truth of God's word, the promises of God's word, and he's stirred in his spirit as an intercessor to pray and say, God, this is what you said in your word that you would do. God, this lines up with scripture and he becomes an intercessor and he's praying and praying. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you said you're going to do it. Lord, you said this is what you're going to do. And as he's praying and interceding, God working perhaps through Daniel's prayer in a special way begins to now stir the heart of the man that he wants to use in this process. And through perhaps the prayers of one of God's people, the heart of Cyrus is stirred and he hears a calling from God and he ends up answering this call, if you would, to carry out this process. So possibly through Daniel's prayers, very likely, but also very likely through the word of God and its power itself. If I could ask you to hold your finger here and turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 44. Hold your finger there in Ezra. We'll go right back. But Isaiah chapter 44 and 45 give to us something very, very interesting. Again, remember, Isaiah wrote about 150 years historically before Cyrus the king was ever born. Okay? So under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing 150 years before King Cyrus is even born, let alone before he becomes a king. And God spoke about Cyrus as his instrument on earth before Cyrus was ever even born 150 years prior to his birth. And look what God says in Isaiah 44, verse 28, the last verse of Isaiah 44. God speaks of Cyrus by name. He says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. God says, I'm going to use him to shepherd people, and he's going to perform my pleasure on the earth as a king and as a ruler. He shall perform my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says, chapter 45, the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron give you the treasures of darkness and hidden secrets places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name and have named you, though you have not known me. Again, God's saying that to Cyrus, 150 years before he's born. You don't know me, but I know you, and I'm going to allow you to be born and raise you up and one day let you become a ruler for the sake of my people Israel, that you might orchestrate things on their behalf. He says, for my servant's sake, for my elect, that's why I've called you to do things I want you to do, assist them and to facilitate what would be in the best interest of God's people. Amazing. Look at verse 13, chapter 45. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct his ways regarding Cyrus he shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. So 
again, God speaking of Cyrus, these specific things about him, Josephus, the historian says, and again, this is, you know, history. We can't be 100%, you know, guaranteed. It's not scriptural. That when Cyrus came in and conquered Babylon, that Daniel or perhaps someone else went to Cyrus with a copy of the scroll of Isaiah and said, um, King, can I show you something? You're actually way more famous and important then you really recognize and perhaps open this section and said, this is a document that was recorded 150 years before you were ever born. Look what God said about you. You want to talk about giving somebody confidence they're supposed to be in a place of rulership? <laughs> this is, and, and no doubt Cyrus, again, doesn't mean he necessarily became a believer, but to realize, oh my goodness, the God of Israel said this about me by name. And again, we could look at other parts of those same chapters that indicate even more specifics of things that happened with how he conquered and overcame. Time doesn't permit, but the fact that he realized he was ordained by God to send back the exiles freely and to encourage them to rebuild their temple and to return to their homeland by the decree of God. And that he was carrying out God's edict and he was just to facilitate that. So again, the power of God's word. That's another way that people's hearts are stirred. Through prayer, through the word of God, through a prophetic word. These are the things at times that stir a person's heart that make them realize, I think God is stirring me to do something. And so his heart is stirred. He issues this edict. That's why verse 2, this all makes sense then. This is what he wrote. Thus says Cyrus, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. How else would he know that? Because Isaiah 44 and 45 told him that. Somebody told him that. And very likely because of his familiarity with the word of God or what was shared with him, he realizes God said that he gave me this place of rulership and that I'm commanded by a sovereign God, the God of Israel, to do this and so he references that here i'm commanded to to build him a house at jerusalem so he says to the people who among you verse three of all his people may his god be with him and now here's the invitation let him go up to jerusalem which is in judah build the house of the lord god of israel which is in jerusalem so there's the invitation whoever wills to go go the opportunity is presented to the Jewish people. You don't have to stay here any longer. You are free to go. Go back to your homeland. Rebuild your temple. I am telling you as your ruler, not only am I encouraging this, but, but there's financial incentive we're going to see. I'm going to take care of you and make sure that you're taken care of. Because look, even verse 4, he goes on to say, whoever is left, wherever he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and goods and livestock for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. In other words, he, in his decree, says, look, may the Jews return, and whoever is a neighbor of any Jewish person around him, if you're not going back, I want you to give him gold and silver and help finance the trip to travel 900 miles back to Jerusalem, and so they have what they need financially to get started to do this work of God and begin to rebuild the temple. Again, just so amazing to see the confidence in which this is taking place here and, and the opportunity. Now, this is the call of God put out to the people of God. Leave. This is an opportunity now for you to go and to, to rebuild the temple, this 
place that's been burnt down and destroyed and has desperate need. And again, as I said, it wasn't an easy calling. But, you know, a lot of times the call of God isn't really easy. A lot of times that's what people want. They want an easy calling. This wasn't an easy calling. This was traveling 900 miles. Again, without all modern amenities and all that kind of stuff, it was a long journey to go 900 miles. No Amtrak, no airplanes, 900 miles on foot, caravan, dangerous territory. Just to get there was extremely difficult. And when you show up there, you know, there's not somebody there. Okay, well, hey, let's, don't worry. It was a complete faith step to depart from everything in Babylon that had become established and comfortable and was easy and their businesses and their houses and to let go of that and to go to a place that wasn't very appealing at all. Again, the, the, the city was destroyed. The, the temple was burnt down. It was not an appealing calling. You know, but sometimes this is how the call of God is. God calls us to, to take the hard road, to take the calling that's not too appealing, the calling that it's not easy. But sometimes that's part of the way the call of the Lord works. The Lord stirs our heart and says, okay, you can be comfortable or you can follow my calling. And so sometimes we have to make that decision in our lives, what it is we're going to do. And here this call is put out to the people of God now to see who will answer it and take this trip back. As I said, just a little less than 50,000 actually go now at this point. But there's this encouragement to go and this assurance, hey, for those who do go, uh, any who are left, your neighbors, help them. Again, either you're going to be a goer, God says, or if you're not going to go, then give to those who will. Help those who do go, stand behind them. The king says, so verse five says, and the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So take notice those who went, why did they go again? Notice the same language. Verse five, just like God stirred the heart of Cyrus. Now, how did the people go? It says those went, it says whose spirits God had moved. God moved in their heart. He moved on their spirit to move in the direction that he wanted them to go, to go up and to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. You know, that, that's typically how the, the call of God happens, to ministry, to service, to answer the Lord's calling, to move in some direction or take a step towards something God wants to do, is God stirs in our heart. God moves in the inward man, the Bible tells us in Philippians that uh, it's God who works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. That is God works in the inward man. The Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who then works in us to will and to act. So again, the idea is we're to work out and to walk out what God works into our heart. And I can tell you, you know, a few times in my life, you know, having taken some major steps of faith and there were other minor ones here and there, but whether it was the minor steps or whether it was some of the more major steps that, you know, took as an individual Christian or that we've taken as a family to embrace callings for ministry, that's usually how it works. It starts with a stirring and a waiting upon the Lord that it's not just you ate too much pepperoni pizza the night before or, you know, that you got excited about something because you're sick and tired of your job. or You've got to be careful of that kind of stuff. It's not about, oh, I just had a bad day at work or I'm sick and tired of this or that, and so I just there's got to be grass greener somewhere. Be careful of that. 
A lot of times it should be the grass is so green where you're at, you don't want to leave the green grass to go to the desert. That's usually the call of God. <laughs> That's what I've found before. It's usually, it's hard because the grass is really green where you are and you're comfortable and content and everything's going well. And then God says, uh, how about if you let all that go and start over? How about you let all that go and for the sake of your kingdom? I mean, I, I remember when things were orchestrating, when we were you know, leaving Calvary Chapel, York, and uh, you know, making plans and preparations to come back here and just you know, working through that process and answering the call. And, and I remember specifically, uh, I believe it was actually might have been, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. It was my mother-in-law. I'm just going to say it. Um, dear woman, loves the Lord. Very excited. And I remember she was saying to me, oh, isn't this, she's a very, you know, uppy person. Aren't you so excited? This is so exciting. Wow, this is so neat. You're taking adventure of faith. And I, I said, no, I'm not excited at all. This is sheer obedience. Why would I be excited about giving up everything that's finally become somewhat normalized and comfortable? Everything's great here. You know, we've been here for 13 years. Just, you know, the Lord's finally some blood, sweat, and tears brought it. And and now start all over again? And on top of that, have to, you know, explain that to four women in my household and convince them to follow along with that. You know, they're not little girls anymore now and uproot them and their lives and start all over. You know, and there's like there was some, you know, thing on the other side where, hey, well, when you come here, by the way, here's the salary and the package and the benefit. You know, just there was none of that. There was none of that. The Lord takes care of that if God's in it. Don't, don't get me wrong. God's good. And I found that when you answer the call of God, he takes care of you. He stirs in the heart and things work out. And, but that's not the way it worked. That's not the way it worked the first time or the second time or, or any of the other times. Just it's Lord. Okay. I'll leave the green grass. I'll go to the desert and, and, and just trust that if we do that, Lord, that if it's your call, that you're going to take care of things. And, you know, that's a difficult venture sometimes, but a lot of times this is how the call of God works in our lives. He calls us to take steps of sacrifice and obedience. And here the Lord stirred the spirits of those who went, it says, and they arose. That is, they, they had to get up and they had to go. And, and it was a, a, an effort to build the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem. And verse six says, all those who were around them, look at it. It says, encourage them with articles of silver and gold and goods and livestock and precious things besides all that was willingly offered. Again, once they took the step to go, their spirit was stirred. They submitted to what God wanted. They, they, they arose in faith. They began the process to step forward. And then it was confirmed. Then they were encouraged. Then they were supported. Then the finances came to supplement and to help them to facilitate what God wanted them to do. It says, as they went, those around them, their neighbors, those who, they encouraged them, hey, here's silver, here's gold. You're going to need some resources as you do that. And I'm telling you, when God guides, he provides. If God is guiding you into something personally, guiding your family into something he will evidence that strongly by providing for you, by making sure that the pieces come together and you will not have to work any, you know, gears or push buttons or twist people's arms or cry broke or cry poor or pray prayers about provision. So hopefully Christians in the circle will hear you and give you money afterwards. You don't have to do any of that. God just takes care of his people. 
And God finances what God wants done. And here, God stirred one group to go, and then he stirred another group to be the senders for those who were going and to encourage them and to help them to go. In verse 7, look at this. Even, even the political king, it says, And King Cyrus, verse 7, remember I said financial incentive? He also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And he put them in the temple of his God. So he had taken all the articles from the temple and he put them in his storehouses of his pagan deities. And he says, hey, it's not right to send them back to their temple without their temple stuff. So verse eight says Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them all out by the hand of Mithradeth, the treasurer. And he counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, Commentators disagree if that's another name for Zerubbabel there or someone who worked in partnership. I don't think it's necessarily that vital. Sheshbazzar was obviously somebody who was connected to Zerubbabel and his leadership. It could be another name for Zerubbabel. We're not certain. But now these resources are entrusted to this man who's a leader that's going to lead back this delegation so they have this when they go back with them as a group. Verse 9 says, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters. 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives. Now, again, do you notice how meticulous God is with resources? The accounting, how God is very serious about good accountability and financial stewardship. And 29 knives, not 28, 29 knives. Here, boss, here's 28 knives. And God said, no, 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 there's 29 knives. Where's the other knife? There's 29 knives that left. Did 29 knives get to Jerusalem? Again, I, I, just interesting to see. God's a very good steward with his resources. 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and a 1,000 other articles. And all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. And these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. So again, the multiple different ways God was working to provide what was necessary. He now gives them all of their articles from the temple that had been kept in his storehouses of his temples. He returns them. Look, these are yours. They belong to you and to your God. Take them back to Jerusalem with you. He's again giving them the assistance that they need in every way possible. Very interesting. You notice there's no mention here of some of the temple furnishings, the more familiar ones that we know of, the altar of incense, you know, the, uh, you know the, the, the table of showbread, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. No reference to these things here. Silence we have about that, where these things are and whether they were destroyed. You know, there are different speculations what happened to them historically. But when they're sent back here, there's no reference to any of these things documented being sent back with them as they go back to rebuild their temple. Well, chapter 2 then gives to us a long list and record. Again, talk about God being a God of details of those who actually took the call of God and went back. It says, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity and those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. So again, these are the listings of the individuals who chose to answer the call to embrace the invitation that God had extended to them as an opportunity to go back and to answer his calling to rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Again, verse 2 says to us, those who came with Zerubbabel, 
And you notice then the names that begin to be listed, those who came with Zerubbabel. Remember I said that he was the one as the leader who led back this first delegation. And this is now the listing in this chapter. And no, I am not going to read to you all those names. But if you're struggling to sleep tonight, God's word is good for everything. Better to fall asleep trying to read that than watching something else, right, on Netflix or anything else. So the list there of all these names are recorded for us, the different territories they come from, the different locations from Bethlehem, from you know, Asmathoth, from Kirjoth, Arim, the locations and territories. Verse 36 describes some of those who were priests from verse 36 down through verse 39. Verse 40 mentions those specifically who were the Levites who actually came back in this journey, returning back. If you look down to verse 55, you have the sons of Solomon's servants, so some individuals who are connected to them. Look at verse 59. It says, all these were were the ones who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, and Cherub, and Adam, and Immer. But notice, they could not, verse 59, identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Delilah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652, and the sons of the priests mentioned there, verse 62, look what it says, these sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled, And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things, that is, those sacred things set apart by God to make provision for his Levites and the priests, those who are performing ministry in a full-time capacity to be, in a sense, employed to give their full attention to that. They were not to partake of those things, it says. It says, until a priest can consult with the Urim and the Thum, that is, to get God's direction on this matter. So this very little interesting insert. In the midst of all these list of names, there are some individuals who were Levites and seeking to participate in the priesthood, and it says there was no documentation. They couldn't find a listing of their names registered. It couldn't be found, so they weren't able to partake of God's sacred provisions and what God wanted those whose names were listed to receive and to experience. And so they had, in a sense, to be excluded from that temporarily. Now, very interesting is this whole thing is just, you know, a a beautiful picture not only of what's happening. As I look at that there, it reminds me in some ways of, you know, Revelation chapter 20, when the Bible speaks of those who will be excluded from the wonderful spiritual and eternal experience that God wants for those to have whose names are found written in a more important listing in the book of life. And it says all those whose names are not found written or recorded in the book of life, they're excluded. If there's no documentation, then there's no participation in the eternal realm. Here, for these individuals, there was no documentation, and God said no documentation, no participation. Again, because God knew everybody that belonged to him, and that's evident by looking at the chapter, right? All those who answered that call, and this is a list of individuals, again, ultimately, I said it's under just about under 50,000 people, but how beautiful that God knew every single person who answered his call. A lot of those names, you look at the name and think, why are they in my Bible? I don't want to, I can't even pronounce that guy's name. What, who is he? Complete human obscurity. 
but total popularity in heaven. Because God says, even if what you did to answer my call on earth with a name that people can't even pronounce, and you live in obscurity and you function in obscurity and nobody else knows what you did or what it cost you to leave Babylon and make the journey and make the sacrifice to answer, God goes, I know all about it. And I see it. And your name is documented and your reward is waiting. Listen, it doesn't matter who knows or doesn't know. The sacrifices you make, the callings that you embrace, the things that you do, God knows. God's got your name. And God will reward you adequately. God's fully aware of everything that you've done. The list is there. He takes note of all those kind of things. Says there was a total here. Ultimately, verse 65 gives to us, again, that amount somewhere around 50,000 or so. Let's just finish up our chapter as we conclude this evening. Verse 66 tells us also the amount of horses that were there, 736, and the mules were 245, and the camels, as well as the donkeys, were, it says 6,720. And some of the heads of the fathers' houses, verse 68, came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and offered freely for the house of God to erect its place. According, verse 69 says, to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers, again, all these different functions and capacities of serving God, and the Nethanim, they dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So again, different individuals with different capacities, different giftings from the Lord. This remnant now, just a small remnant in comparison to who could have went, just this small remnant coming together, bringing their abilities, as well as offering their resources to be able to facilitate and bring about what God wants, this wonderful restoring of the temple this spiritual awakening that happens from just a small group of dedicated people. Just a small group. And again, what does God care about? What God cares about is that we just offer our availability and what we're able to do. You take notice of that even there in verse 68, verse 69, excuse me, as it's talking about just their giving to help and support what's going to happen. It says, according to their ability, they gave to the temple treasury. God's not necessarily referencing the amounts. God says they gave according to their ability. Because that's what God looks at. God knows what we're able to do. God knows what we're not able to do. And he appreciates us doing what we can do, whether it's our time, our talents, or our treasure, just giving according to our ability. Lord, this is what I'm able to do. According to my ability, however I can help to support in the process. And when we do that, you know, it's a really wonderful thing when even just a small group can come together and their hearts are stirred and they sense the call of God. You know, there's that old adage, I forget who said it many, many years ago. There is no limitation to what God is able to do through just a small group of people who don't care who gets the glory but God. Something really, really wonderful can happen when it's a genuine work of God's spirit, stirring the hearts of people, seeing that God wants something to happen, coming together collaboratively, doing what each can do according to their ability. And again, there's, there's no needing to manufacture things. 
There's no needing to rely on all these worldly techniques to try and generate it and make it happen. You know, I, I have, to some degree, maybe to my you know error, almost tried intentionally to stay as far away from that kind of stuff as possible because I don't ever want to be engaged in something and wondering, did somehow I make this happen? I would much rather know the only reason anything's happening because somehow God's making something happen. <laughs> because all I'm doing is showing up and being available, Lord, and just trying to do the basic things with a pure heart the best I can with a group of people who are trying to do the same thing. And wonderful what God's able to do. Let's stand together. Let's pray.